Hey folks, Brian here. I just want to thank you guys for listening and also contributing to the show in your various ways, whether it be through emails or likes and follows or reviews or in some cases uh, monetary donations. I want to thank each and every one of you. You guys are the inspiration for me keeping this going. So let's keep right on rolling into 2021. Later. episode number 36 of the Confessions of an Arcade Addict podcast. Okay, when last we left off, um, I had talked about uh, going through a pseudo-difficult time. Um, Basically, I lost my job four days before my last day because my boss is vindictive like that. Uh, Let's see. um, So what happened after that is I got the... I did all the orientation for my job, I got my shots, I talked about that. Um, My first day on the job was actually that Tuesday, and everything went okay. The guy who trained me apparently was impressed with my ability to learn the system and uh, the way things are done over at the new place. It's a lot different, but, you know, you just deal with it. Um, There are a lot more procedures, a lot more things to be aware of while you're doing your job, but it's not that difficult. Um, So I've been doing it for the last three weeks, and apparently everybody is happy with what I'm doing and how I'm doing it, so I'm just going to keep it going. Um, Let's see, I did go to the arcade in Brighton on this past Saturday, and... I hadn't been there in a couple of months. I mean, I've already posted it on Facebook and Instagram and Tumblr. Um, But yeah, I got my all-time high score on three particular arcade games. It was what? That Funky Miss Pac-Man, Star Wars, and Gorf. I mean, I hadn't touched Star Wars since I had been to uh, the arcade in Brighton the last time, which I think was like, what? Beginning of January, somewhere around there. And, uh, I haven't played Gorf with any sort of seriousness since the last time, and the same thing for, uh, that Hyper Miss Pac-Man. I did a full breakdown, including how I was feeling about the whole thing in an on-the-road segment, which you will hear soon, so stay tuned. Let's just say that I hate to sound like Han Solo, but sometimes I even amaze myself. I was thinking that my reflexes were starting to go away because now I'm 52 years old, 
but apparently not. <laughs> and I couldn't be happier about it. Um, let's see. I do have plans on going to the arcade in Brighton. Not this weekend coming up, but the next weekend. The weekend of the 6th. Um, I'm probably going to end up taking my godson. Um, I'm still considering when I can take my own son because he's going to be a handful and I'm balking right now at paying $40 for the both of us just to be chasing him around because all he wants to do is run around in the place he's, you know, he may play some games, he probably will, but I really am balking at that. <laughs> I may hold off on taking him to the arcade until he's probably a little older, probably maybe eight. Um, right now he's about six and a half, and he is just a ball of energy that just never stops until he actually lays down and go to sleep. So um, it's just going to be one of those kind of things. But anyway, uh, moving right along. Um, oh yeah. I did get a car. I did take delivery of a uh, 2011 uh, Chevy, and she's been doing pretty well. I mean, I've been driving her for about two weeks. Um, there are some things in the car that I want to replace. Um, the window, driver's side window motor is pretty much shot and it barely even functions when it's in cold weather and we had a really bad cold snap in the middle of when I took delivery and it go, it rolls down perfectly fine but it basically rolls up very slowly <laughs> oh it's funny I mean to the point where I have to reach across with my right hand while my left hand is on the window button and actually pull the window up to make it roll up faster so yeah, I need to replace that. I'm going to replace the radio in the car because it's more or less just a standard unit. And the Bluetooth is very primitive with it being a 10-year-old car. I mean, it deals with my phone calls just fine, but um, I'm used to having a radio that has Bluetooth in it where I can play music, stream it from my phone, and not have to worry about auxiliary cables or anything like that. So that's a plan in the future, probably when I get the uh, stimulus check and we'll just go from there. Okay, I mean, aside from that, yeah, it's good to have a car again. It's good to be able to know that if I want to get behind the wheel and drive somewhere, I can do that. You know, the feeling of freedom is wonderful. I mean, with my previous job, I, of course, used a car to get to and from work and to do my grocery shopping, like I said in episode 35. But yeah, it's just good to be able to know that I can just put on a coat, put on some clothes, walk out to the car, get behind the wheel, and just go wherever I want to go, even though most of the time I don't go anywhere. <laughs> uh, uh, this pandemic thing, it's really wonderful. But anyway... Um, I did check emails and voicemails, uh, still nothing in the box, so once again, um, if you've got any uh, thoughts, uh, questions, um, critiques, as long as you're nice, 
you know, or anything of that matter, just get a hold of me at arcadeaddictbrian at gmail.com. Also, there is a number for voicemails. That number is 734-743-2433. Social media is ongoing, of course. I am on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Tumblr. Uh, on Facebook, and I have noticed this over the last, I want to say, two weeks. I think ever since I uh, put out episode 35. <laughs> I don't know why. I'm not going to question it. But there have been a lot more people checking out uh, the podcast page. Um, so, yeah, if you are you know have any sort of interest at all, yeah, you just, on uh, Facebook, you just type in Confessions of an Arcade Addict. It will take you right to the page. And also there is a discussion group that goes along with that. So there are people there, and if you have any questions or something about the podcast you want to talk about, either to me or to the people that are there, by all means, have at it. Um, let's see, on Twitter, my screen name is ArcadeAddict underscore B. On Facebook, it is ArcadeAddictBrian. And Tumblr is Tumblr.com slash blog slash Confessions of an Arcade Addict. So once again, there are ways of getting hold of the show. And also you can, if you are so inclined, get a hold of me on Anchor. The address for the podcast is anchor.fm slash C-O-A-A. And you can actually get a hold of me through there. Actually, my first email to the show was from a fellow podcaster on Anchor, which was actually kind of cool. So yeah, once again, plenty of ways to get a hold of the show. You got any questions? If I'm able to answer your questions, I will do so. So by all means, have at it. Okay, with that out of the way, let's get on with the show. We have quite a bit to talk about here, so let's get right to it. Top 10s. Top 10s in television games. Okay, full disclosure, I've never owned it in television, it's true, but thanks to the video connection, uh, the department stores and the sporting goods stores in my local mall, and several friends throughout the years, I was able to play quite a few in television games. Uh, this was a great system when it came out, even though it was pretty expensive. And in the late 70s and early 80s, it was something of a status symbol amongst gamers for a few years. Or at least until the Intellivision 2 came out and the price went down. Um, let's see, according to Wikipedia, 133 titles were released for the Intellivision between 1979 and 1989. So here are my 10 favorites. Uh, once again, no particular order. Um, I had to consult the list because I could only think of a few and then of course reading the list my memories started coming back to me so I comprised this list along with uh, 10 uh, honorable mentions so here we go of course if you've listened to the show you know my love for this game Advanced Dungeons and Dragons Treasure of Tarman I mean I've said it a few times and I've told a couple of stories in previous episodes but yeah this is my all-time favorite in television game. I mean, there's no even remote remote semblance of a doubt about it. Um, when this game came out in 83, I would be constantly pestering uh, the owners at the video connection to let me play it almost every time I walked into the door. 
it was a wonderful combination of my two chief obsessions at that time in my life, uh, video games and Dungeons and Dragons. Um, I'd started playing Dungeons and Dragons in 1981, and as I was playing, I was learning the system, then I spent some money uh, to buy the um, venerable basic expert system. It were two box sets. I think they were like $15 a piece or something like that. And I learned how I learned the game from there. And then in 82, I graduated to Advanced Dungeons and Dragons. Of course, that's more books. Um, and I got them a little, you know, here and there, a little bit at a time. Um, and it just kept going into 83. Um, that's been, by the way, 1983 was my freshman year in high school, <laughs> on top of all that. Um, so yeah, I mean, I'm going to give this game the Are You Experienced Time for Some Strategy Treatment. I'm not going to go into it now because it's pretty involved, but it will be in a future episode. Stay tuned. Um, Major League Baseball. Um, this was one of the all-time best baseball games for any video game system bar none. Um, past, present, future, doesn't matter. Um, as I said in the friendly uh, competition uh, episode, episode 31, uh, some of my most treasured memories I have of this game were when I would go to the G Fox department store in the mall and hang out in the TV department playing uh, Atari and Intellivision games. At least until the salespeople chased me out of there. <laughs> um, a friend of my uh, the family was working there and he would always come to this department and play games on his lunch break. Once I found out about that, I'd meet him here and we would just go at it on this baseball game. You know, I had so much fun playing against him. It was it was great. You know, I wonder, you know, what he's doing these days cuz yeah, for a couple of years there he was kind of like an older brother to me. NFL football. Um I put this game here for a couple of reasons. I mean, first, the game was great. It was finally a legitimate, and I even shut, I don't really want to use that word, but it's the only one that's coming to mind right now, but it was the first legitimate football game. I mean, football for the Atari was okay, but it was only like, what, uh, what was it, uh, six on six, um, but still, this one was a really good football game, and... Also, back in the day, when I would be watching cartoons on either Channel 11 in New York City or Channel 20 in Hartford, Connecticut, um, they would have what was called, um, well, in, on Channel 11 they call it TV Picks, and on Channel 20 they called it TV Pow, but it was still the same thing. Um, basically, kids would call in to try and win prizes playing these, uh, playing these um in television games they had it hooked into the um uh the telephone line somehow it was either that or someone was like playing games uh remotely i'm not 100 percent sure but you know kids would call in during the afternoon and they would you know be playing these games through the phone and trying to win uh prizes and stuff it was pretty cool um they had it for basketball they had it for football um, they had it for um, Space Raiders, you know, and it you know it was just awesome. It was awesome to watch. It was pretty cool. 
Um, I tried a couple of times to try to call into Hartford to try and get onto TV Pal, but I couldn't. Of course, the lines were probably jammed up. Um, one of my major complaints, and you're going to see it as we go through this segment, is that a lot of these games, uh, like football, baseball, um, and several, a couple other games, they were strictly two-player games. They didn't have a one-player option, and that's, I think, where... Um, Mattel really screwed up when it come, when it came to these games, you know, because I think they would have gotten a lot more play if they were one or two player games as opposed to two players. But it still was a good game, the, you know, the football game. Okay, Astro Smash. This was an interesting game. It was a really like a Space Invader style game where you had a laser base on the ground and there would be various. Um, objects and sp- and ships and things like that falling towards the ground. Of course, you can shoot them with your laser, um, and you use that laser to, to blast them for points. But what it made it really interesting that with the exception of one or two objects, every object that reached the ground is actually subtracted from your score. And then as you reach certain point thresholds, there would be a multiplier that would increase. I think it went like what? Yeah, one through like six X, I think. And, you know, the further along you got in the game, you know, of course, as the multiplier goes up, the um, point values for the things that you would shoot would go up, and also the game would get harder. And it would get really hard really fast. Um, you know, it was a lot of fun, and it was also frustrating, especially once you got past the four X multiplier level. Um, and of course, there. You know, of course, as things fell down onto the ground and your subtraction from your score, they would actually it could actually knock you underneath a uh, a multiplier threshold. So yeah, it made the game interesting. But yeah, once you got up around 4x, 5x, and 6x, things got really crazy. But yeah, it was a great game. Sea battle. Like I just said, this was a game that was a two-player game, but it should have had a one-player option. Um, basically, you use your fleet of naval ships to destroy the other player's fleet. You have different kinds of ships, and each one had different characteristics, which made for some interesting matchups. I mean, the submarine was the most useful ship in the game by far because it was it moved quickly. And you could get, you could actually like dart inside like another ship's uh, range, shot range to, you know, hit them and you know destroy them, um, and dart back out again. But once you, if you lost the submarine, then of course, you know, your task to beat the other person just got harder. Um, I remember playing games against people where I beat them using just the submarine. <laughs> You know, but yeah, it was a great game, but I just wish it had a one-player option, as always. Okay, um, Tron Deadly Discs. Um, in 1982, Tron was ruling the roost in a bunch of ways. First of all, you had the movie that Disney put out, which was an instant classic. Then right on the heels of that, you had the arcade game hit the arcades, and it was radically different than almost every other game out there. So it garnered a lot of interest, not only because of the movie tie-in, but also because the game was so great. And then Mattel started making 
really good Tron games right around 1982. Um, Tron Deadly Discs was the best of a lot by far. I mean, um, the only other game that probably could come close is Tron Solar Sailor, but I only played that game once. Um, you're tr in this game, you are, of course, Tron on the game grid, uh, throwing your memory disc at other at the opponents to try and kill them. The one thing that really, really knocked me out and freaked me out was when the recognizers would come out because there was only like one particular way you could kill them and if you weren't lined up with the one place you can shoot them you know you basically were dead and that was it the game was fantastic i loved it oh uh, let's see b17 b17 bomber um when the voice pack came out for the intellivision you know of course they had i think they had four games that came along with it that you could play you know on the voice pack b17 bomber was i think the first and probably with the exception of tron solar sailor was the best um you know i was constantly bothering the people at the video connection to play it you know when i was playing treasure of tarman that is um, the game was hard. It really was. Even on the easy levels, it was hard because you had to fly a course to where you were going to uh, bomb the enemy. You had to use the gunners um, at the various uh, clock positions. I think it was 12 o'clock, 3 o'clock, 6 o'clock, and 9 o'clock. I think that's how it was. And basically, you could hit a button on the controller and it would take you to that gunnery position and uh, enemy fighters were attacking your bomber, so you had to shoot them down with your with your gunnery positions. So you had to do that. Then you had to um, avoid uh, flak as you were going over the target location, and then you had to drop your bombs at just the right moment to be able to hit your targets. I mean, this is a really, really difficult game because you had a lot going on and of course as you destroyed enemy targets in uh in like uh france and things like that you would start progressing east and the further and the closer you got to germany of course this is all off the top of my head uh remembering but i think the closer you got to germany the harder and harder and harder the game became um i mean it was just fun because you had that that voice with the southern accent, you know, talking about, you know, you know, tar you know, the targets there, bombs away, you know, things like that. It was really cool. One of my one of my favorites. That's why it's here. <laughs> um, the Dreadnought Factor. Okay, I did mention this game when I talked about my top ten Atari fifty two hundred games, but this is what really got me into it, uh, the Intellivision version. Um it fed into my Luke Skywalker slash Death Star fantasies. I think this game came out shortly after Return of the Jedi came out. So, you know, there was a lot of that going on. Um, it was a lot of fun to play once you got used to the controller and you know, got used to the controls and whatnot. But yeah, it was one of those games that you had to have, I'd say, probably a good 30 to 45 minutes to kill in order to play the game properly because it just took that long. <laughs> okay, here's one that people 
only a few people out there will even know about trucking. Uh, aside from a good time at the arcade or playing D&D with my friends, one of the things I really loved to do was go on road trips with my family. Um, I always look forward to going on fam family reunions in the summer because we almost always drove. I'm trying to think, I think there was only maybe two times, maybe two, out of the all the years that I accompanied my family on reunions that um, we flew. Because, oh, no, that's right. No, we flew once. It was me and my mother in, oh, goodness, what year was that? Was that 83? I think it was 83. We flew down to, uh, flew down to D.C., I think. Or it was either D.C. or it was Norfolk, something like that. And the other time, uh, we took a train in, what was it, 76? You know, because uh, our family reunion was in New York City. So those were, like, the only two times, uh... All the other times, you know, um, usually it was like my stepfather, my mom, my brother, me. It was at least that. There was a time where we all packed up and, and got into my uncle's RV. And we, you know, just got down there and we actually had a couple. We had like a little mini convoy going. I think we had like two other cars aside from my uncle's RV. Um... Most of the time, it was driving down the Interstate 95 into Virginia or Maryland with an occasional trip to Washington, D.C. thrown in, though one time we had a reunion in Youngstown, Ohio, and that required driving down Interstate 80 the entire length of the state of Pennsylvania, which was up over 300 miles. I just love seeing this country of ours from the backseat window of a car, or better yet, the window of my uncle's RV. Um... I also remember spending many a summer evening when I was younger um, near an exit off of Interstate 95 in my hometown and just watch the traffic go by. And it was it was fairly dangerous. My mother was always worried about me, but I didn't care about it. And I would just see, you know, the trucks going, you know, barreling down the highway. And I was always wondering where they were going and what they were carrying and stuff like that. So... Well, I saw that a Magic had made, made a truck driving game, you know, I was really, really interested. Um, this was another game I played at uh, the Video Connection a lot, because nobody that I knew who had an Intellivision had it. Um, this game was like 35 years before Euro Truck Simulator or its American counterpart, but the premise was the same. You took cargo from one place to another using highways and interstates to get there. Of course, you know, trucking was very, was much more basic, but once you got the hang of it, it was actually fun. But yeah, it was really difficult to learn and to master. Uh, let's see. And let's see, last but not least, Beam Rider. Uh, I liked this game more because it had a Tron vibe to it. I mean, in 1982, it was like, you know, once you saw the movie, it was like you looked at video games differently and you also saw that there were a lot of uh, other games that were taking elements of Tron and incorporating it, that into their games. Um, everything took place on a grid, but this was a shooter, um, pseudo 3D shooter, but it was actually really a really good game. Um, I played it a few times on the Intellivision, but I played it more on my Commodore 64, uh, which of course had better graphics. 
So, yeah, I mean, it was a it was a pretty good game, but yeah, I played it much later in life, <laughs> much more later in life. Uh, let's see, my honorable mentions, uh, boxing, NBA basketball, the first Advanced Dungeons & Dragons game, which probably was right there with uh, Gateway to Apshire as the first true action RPG. Uh, let's see, Night Stalker, Star Strike, Dragonfire, and Swords and Serpents. So, those are my top tens without honorable mentions. Um, any games you think should be on this list, or you think that I, you know, I overlooked a game, hey, get a hold of me. ArcadeAddictBrian at gmail.com Okay, from there, let's get right on to Arcade Rundown. Good morning, Mr. Phelps. Your mission, Jim, should you decide to accept it, is to make Stefan believe Thompson's information. As always, should you or any of your IM force be caught or killed, the secretary will disavow any knowledge of your actions. This state will self-destruct in five seconds. Good luck, Jim. Arcade Rundown. Pop Pizza slash Off-World Arcade, Detroit, Michigan. Okay, back when I started this show in 2018, uh, one of the things I felt that I had to do was to give rundowns and reviews of any local arcades in the greater Detroit area. Um, I had already put down my thoughts about Pinball Pete's and the arcade in Brighton. Um, those were like the two arcades that I went to the most, even back then. So I was thinking that Detroit is quote-unquote a, you know, a major city in this country. Uh, I would think that there would be more arcades than just Pinball Pete's in Ann Arbor. So, I just decided one day I would just get on my computer, fire up the Google machine, and start searching. And that's what I did. Um, my disappointment was pretty high to find out there weren't a lot of arcades in the greater Detroit area. And the thing that was even more of a disappointment was that a good number of the ones that I found had been closed down even back in 2018. So yeah, I mean, I was not happy about it, but I did find several in the Detroit area, and I resolved that I would at least try to find out about these places by, you know, going to the various locations. Um... One of the places that I found that was still going strong before the pandemic was Pop Pizza uh, slash Off-World Arcade in downtown Detroit. Um, one day, and I think I talked about it, I think it's in a... Uh, oh, that's right, no it wasn't. It. That was when I did my arcade review, which is coming, so stay tuned. Um, I just decided on a Saturday afternoon after I got done at work that I was just going to you know, take a little jaunt over there and just see what it was about. And sure enough, you know, after I was done with work, I just said, you know, let's do it. So, you know, got, got behind the wheel and, you know, hoofed it over to Detroit. And after finding a parking space, which was only like half a block away from the actual building, you know, and I got some money for an ATM, I just walked in, walked in the door and... 
I just looked, you know, looked around. Um, when you first walk in the door, uh, Pop's Pizza is immediately to your right. Um, I was a little pressed for time that day, so um, I just decided to go straight to the uh, bar and arcade up on the top floor and see what it was about. So I just went straight up the stairs. I mean, it looked interesting. And from what I saw from the uh, patrons in the place, the food looked pretty good. Um, they have gotten a lot of positive reviews about their food. So, you know, I, I may go back there and check out their food, but we'll see. Um, when you get to the top of the stairs and you walk through the door, to, which is to your immediate right at the top of the stairs, you see the, you know, the bar has a you know, karaoke uh, stage and like a small riser for a small band and straight ahead and then to the, and, you know, excuse me, ahead and to the right and the bar is immediately to your left uh, as you enter the place and straight ahead past the bar to the left are the games. Um, the lights were low on the Saturday I went uh, and it was fairly packed with people of all ages. Remember, this was pre-pandemic. This was, what, January, what was the date? January 25th, 2019. So this was way before COVID started. Um, so yeah, there were a lot of people there and there were uh, of all ages. There were people my age, there were people in their 40s, 30s, 20s, teenage kids, and kids right around 10 years old. So it was a really good mix and that's something I really like to see. Um, they had a really good cross-section of games and they relied heavily on the classics you know, as they had, you know, Centipede, which didn't work correctly, uh, Galaga, Double Dragon, Street Fighter 2 Champion Edition, Tron, and a lot of others. Um, and they also had, on the far end of the room, they had a row of pinball machines, including a baby Pac-Man, which I had not played since 1982 at that point. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, I was really, really impressed with the cross-section they had. I didn't, I didn't think to count the machines, but they had, at the very least, I want to say, including the pinball machines, I'd say somewhere upwards of 40 machines, which is not bad, considering that, you know, it's also a bar, and they've got a big screen TV, and all this other stuff that, you know, bars have, so, you know, for, they made a really good, made really good use of the space of the place, which was good. Um, the place was a little dingy, a little grimy, a little gritty, but that's okay because, you know, it works for that place. You know, I wouldn't go to some place in downtown Detroit that wasn't a corporate-owned um, restaurant or bar or something and it not be a little divey. You know, that's just my particular um, experience with, you know, stuff in downtown Detroit. And it's fine because, yeah, like I said, it worked. It was fine. Um, I really enjoyed myself here, um, and despite, you know, what shortcomings this place had, you know, and provided they're still going, I fully plan on going back there. Um, this time I'm going to check out Pop's Pizza and see what the quality of food is like, and, you know, see if those positive ratings are actually justified. Um, if you are an arcade junkie, you could certainly do a lot worse. Uh, than this place, that's for sure. Um, of course, I'll give you a you know a, another report when I go over there. 
Um, and of course, there is an arcade review coming for this for this place, so stay tuned. If you live in the Detroit area and you have, you know, good knowledge of this place, you know, by all means, get a hold of me. Tell me what you feel about it. Arcadeaddictbrian at gmail.com. Okay, and from there, let's go into home systems. There is no place like home. Shall we play a game? Love to. Screw you guys. I'm a game. Clear a path! I'm going home! Home Systems, the Xbox. Not the Xbox 360, that's coming later, but the Xbox, the first one. And with the information found in Wikipedia, let's see what we let's see what we can see. The Xbox is a home video game console and the first installment in the Xbox series of video game consoles manufactured by Microsoft. It was released as Microsoft's first foray into the gaming console market on November 15, 2001 in North America, followed by Australia, Europe, and Japan in 2002. It is classified as a sixth generation console, competing with Sony's PlayStation 2 and Nintendo's GameCube. It was also the first major console produced by an American company since the release of the Atari Jaguar in 1993. Uh, the console was announced in March of 2000. With the release of the PlayStation 2, which featured the ability to play back CD-ROMs and DVDs in addition to playing games, Microsoft became concerned that game consoles would threaten the personal computer as an entertainment device for living rooms. Okay, I don't think they have much to worry about, but okay. Um... Whereas most games, game consoles to that point were built from custom hardware components, the Xbox was built around standard personal computer components using variations of Microsoft Windows and DirectX as its operating system to support games and media playback. The Xbox was technically more, more powerful than its rivals, featuring a 733 MHz Intel Pentium 3 processor, a processor that could be found on a standard PC. The Xbox was the first console to feature a built-in hard disk. The console was also built with direct support for broadband connectivity to the internet via an integrated Ethernet port. And with the release of Xbox Live, a fee-based online gaming service a year after the console's launch, Microsoft gained an early foothold in the online gaming and made the Xbox a strong competitor in the sixth generation of consoles. The popularity of blockbuster titles such as Bungie's Halo 2, contributed to the popularity of online console gaming and in particular first-person shooters. The Xbox had a record-breaking launch in North America selling 1.5 million units by the end of 2001, aided by the popularity of one of the system's launch titles Halo Combat Evolved which sold a million units by April 2002. The Xbox went on to sell a worldwide total of 24 million units including 16 million in North America. However, Microsoft was unable to make a steady profit off of the console, which had a manufacturing, manufacturing price far more expensive than its retail price despite its popularity, losing over $4 billion during its market life. The system outsold the GameCube and the Sega Dreamcast, what was vastly outsold by the PlayStation 2, which had sold, which had sold over 100 million units by the system's discontinuation in 2005. 
It also underperformed outside of the Western market, particularly it sold poorly in Japan due to its large console size and overabundance of games marketed towards American audiences as opposed to Japanese developed titles. Yeah, that was a big mistake. Um, production of the system was discontinued in 2005. The Xbox was the first in an ongoing brand of video game consoles developed by Microsoft with a successor, the Xbox 360, launching in 2005, followed by the Xbox One in 2013, and the Xbox Series X and Series S consoles in 2020. So yeah, that was a major thing, and that was always something that I would read when I would pick up um, video gaming magazines and computer magazines that the Xbox had a real tough time breaking into uh, the Japanese market because, you know, I mean, number one, of course they're going to buy their own system. You know, that's the first thing. The second thing is, is that they didn't really go as far as they should have with trying to get um, more um, Asian-based titles. You know, I think that was a really big... Uh, big mistake on there on that part let's see let's talk about the games uh, the Xbox launched in North America on November 15 2001 popular launch games included Halo Combat Evolve Project Gotham Racing and Dead or Alive 3 all three of these games would go on to sell over a million copies in the US although the console gained strong third-party support from its inception many early Xbox games did not fully use its powerful hardware until a full year after its release. Xbox versions of cross-platform games sometimes came with a few additional features and or graphical improvements to distinguish themselves from the PS2 and GameCube versions of the same game, thus negating one of the Xbox main selling points. Sony countered the Xbox for a short time by temporarily securing PlayStation 2 exclusives for highly anticipated games such as the Grand Theft Auto series and Metal Gear, Metal Gear Solid series, as well as Nintendo for the Resident Evil series. Notable third-party support came from Sega, who announced a le an 11-game exclusivity deal at the Tokyo Game Show. Sega re released exclusives such as Panzer Dragoon Orta and Jet Set Radio Future, which met with a strong reception amongst critics. In 2002 and 2003, uh, the several high-profile releases helped the Xbox game momentum and to distinguish itself from the PS2. Microsoft purchased Rare, responsible for many Nintendo 64 hit games, to expand the first-party portfolio. The Xbox Live Online service was launched in late 2002 alongside pilot titles, MotoGP, Mech Assault, and Tom Clancy's, Tom Clancy's Ghost Recon. Several best-selling and critically acclaimed titles for the Xbox soon followed, such as Tom Clancy's Splinter Cell and Star Wars Knights of the Old Republic. Take-Two Interaction's exclusivity deal with Sony was amended to allow Grand, Grand Theft Auto 3 and its sequels to be published for the Xbox. Many other publishers got into the trend of releasing the Xbox version alongside the PS2 version instead of delaying it for months. 2004 saw the release of the highly rated exclusives Fable and Ninja Gaiden. Both games would become big hits for the Xbox. Later that year, Halo 2 was released and became the highest grossing release in entertainment history, making over $125 million in its first day and became the best-selling Xbox game worldwide. 
Halo 2 became Xbox Live's third killer app after Mech Assault and Tom Clancy's Rainbow Six 3. That year, Microsoft made a deal to put Electronic Arts' popular titles on Xbox Live to boost the popularity of their surface. By 2005, despite notable first-party releases in Conquer, Live and Reloaded, and Forza Motorsport, Microsoft began phasing out the Xbox in favor of their next console, the Xbox 360. Games such as Cameo, Elements of Power, and Perfect Dark Zero were originally to be developed for the Xbox. They became Xbox 360 launch titles instead. The last game released for the Xbox was Madden NFL 09 on August 12, 2008. Let's go to the sales real quick. Prior to launching, anticipation for the Xbox was high, with Toys R Us and Amazon reporting that online pre-orders had sold out within just 30 minutes. Microsoft stated that it planned to ship 1 to 1.5 million units to retailers by the end of the year, followed by weekly shipments of 100,000 units. The launch was one of the most successful in video game history, with unit sales surpassing 1 million after just three weeks, rising further to 1.5 million by the end of 2001. The system also attained one of the highest ever attachment rates at launch with over three games selling per unit, according to the NPD group. Strong sales were tied in large part to the highly anticipated launch title Halo Combat Evolved, which had surpassed sales of 1 million units by April 2002 and attained a 50% attach rate for the console. By July 2004, the system had sold 15.5 million units worldwide, 10.1 million in North America, 3.9 million in Europe, and 1.5 million in Asia-Pacific, and had a 33% market share in the U.S. Despite strong sales in North America, Microsoft struggled to make a profit from the Xbox due to its high manufacturing cost. With an initial retail price of $299, Microsoft lost $125 for every system sold, which cost $425 to manufacture, meaning that the company would have to rely on software tiles in order to make any money. According to Robbie Bach, quote, Probably six months after we shipped, you could see the price curve and do the math and know we were going to lose billions of dollars, end quote. Oh, wow. Sheesh. These losses were further exacerbated in April 2002 when Microsoft lowered the real retail price of the Xbox even further to $199 in order to further drive hardware sales. Microsoft also struggled to compete with Sony's more popular PlayStation 2 console, which generally saw far higher sales numbers, although the Xbox sold the, outsold the PS2 in the US in April 2004. By its manufacturing discontinuing Discontinuation in 2005, the Xbox had sold a total of 24 million units worldwide, 16 million of which had been sold in North America. These numbers fell short of Microsoft's predicted 50 million units and failed to match the PlayStation 2's lifetime sales of 106 million units at the time, although it did surpass the GameCube and Dreamcast's lifetime sales of 21 million and 10.6 million units respectively. Ultimately, Microsoft lost an accumulative total of $4 billion from the Xbox, only managing to turn a profit at the end of 2004. While the Xbox represented an overall loss for Microsoft, Bill Gates, Steve Ballmer, and other executives still saw it as a positive result for the company as it brought them into the console marketplace against doubts raised by the industry and led Microsoft's further developments of other consoles in the Xbox family.
I can go on, but there's a lot more to this, including the uh, the nuts and bolts of how the Xbox was actually constructed, but I will stop here. Uh, my personal thoughts on it. I was really shocked when I heard that Microsoft was going to make a gaming console, um, but that when I found out much later when I actually bought one and started playing games on it, in some ways it was actually better than the PlayStation 2. Um, in terms of processing power, it even had the advantage that you could download music from CDs onto the hard drive and even make playlists to play music for certain games like uh, Burnout and Forza. That was huge, actually. Uh, it made playing those games a lot more fun. I mean, they were fun to begin with, but, I mean, just the idea you can be playing Forza, you know, running around a track and whatnot, and you're hearing your favorite songs, you know, either blasting through the speakers in the TV or through your headphones. I mean, that just makes it even better, in my opinion. Um, through the years, I would hear of people modding the ever-loving crap out of them, so I think the utility of this system was actually better than the PS2, although the PS2 had a much le better library despite the Xbox having several exclusive titles. This was Microsoft's first swing in the home console, and it was a big one. It immediately touched off another console war, one that has raged for four generations now between Microsoft and Sony and their respective fans. <laughs> you know, all you have to do is go to Reddit or um, any other place where, you know, somebody probably knowing exactly what he's doing decides to bring up the which is better, PS2 or Xbox, man. And then all of a sudden, all you gotta do is just sit back and watch the flames rise higher and higher and higher till the mods squash it. <laughs> but yeah, um, I still have my Xbox. It's in my bedroom right now. I've, I don't play games on it because I've got my 360 now. But I mean, it's every once in a while I will pull out. You know, I will pull out my Xbox games and play and play some stuff. I mean, one of the games that I wanted to actually play through and actually beat was Final Fight Streetwise, which was like a, which is Final Fight, but with role-playing elements to it. And yeah, that's a, that game takes a long time to beat. But yeah, that's just how it is. But um, let's see, you know, I loved playing Burnout, um, was it Burnout Takedown, I think? It's either Burnout... Yeah, it was Burnout Takedown, I think. Um, I love playing that game. Like I said, I love playing Forza Motorsport. That was, a, that was an excellent racing game. You know, I considered Forza Motorsport superior to Gran Turismo, even though Gran Turismo had a better licensing deal because it had the overwhelming majority of Japanese imports and other cars from around the world. But... Forza, I think Forza had it beat. It was a, just a better racing game. Um, but yeah, I mean, I still have all my uh, Xbox games for it. I did buy Mech Assault. It's not exactly what I thought it was, but it's not bad. Um, and I also bought uh, Dungeons and Dragons for it after I beat um, Baldur's Gate Dark Alliance for the PlayStation 2. I saw that they put out a D&D game for that, so... I think I got maybe like two-thirds of the way through it before I stopped playing it. But yeah, I'm just saying in in closing that, yeah, the Xbox was a massive swing. And while the Xbox didn't 
hit a home run with the X, you know, with, or excuse me, Microsoft didn't hit a home run with the Xbox. They certainly, it certainly was a stand-up double. <laughs> I'll, I'll give them that much at least. You know, nothing was going to take down the PlayStation 2. You know, it just was too big, too massive, too many games, too many wonderful games. Yeah, that was an uphill battle. Microsoft was not going to win. But I think through the years, they've kind of gotten somewhere close to even footing now with the PlayStation 5 and the Xbox Series 1. But we'll see. You know, I don't pay attention to console wars. <laughs> I never did. It's it's childish. But anyway, enough about that. Um, if you out there, if you owned an Xbox, tell me about it. You know, tell me what you thought of it. What, you know, how it worked for you and how you made it work for you. Brian at gmail.com and we will move on to the last segment of our show, which is the Silver Ball. silver ball kiss okay um i was a big fan of kiss growing up when i was a little kid um i first started listening to kiss in 1976 um i lived on the east side of uh, my hometown at my future stepfather's house um and both my brother and i we befriended one of our neighbors who was uh his name was floyd uh he lived across the street from us i think i think he was like Oh, goodness. I want to say he was about three or four years older than my brother. If this is 76, I'm seven years old going on eight. Um, my brother is um, a little, excuse me, 12 years old going on 13. Um, and so that would make Floyd like at least 16 years old, probably 16, maybe 17. But, you know, my brother and he, they became you know, good friends, you know, really quickly. And, uh, then after a while, um, my brother would borrow, uh, music albums from him all the time when we would play them on my stepfather's stereo. Um, one day he came, he brought home a uh, Kiss's album Destroyer, you know, and I remember he put this on and Detroit Rock City comes up and I'm just like, I'm blown away just blown away now understand even back then i had what i like to think as a pretty wide palette musically because i would listen to everything from uh paul mccartney's wings to kiss to earth wind and fire to stevie wonder you know i'll you know i would listen to almost everything in my mother's music collection you know, and that's just how it was. I mean, I was always really, I really loved music even as a little kid. Um, <laughs> I could go on about that, but now I'm not going to embarrass myself. I'm still not quite over what I've had to talk about in episode 35. Um, 
But yeah, so he came home one day with the Kiss album. Now, it was all kinds of crazy because you had that really, really interesting um, uh, art picture of the four members of Kiss on it. And, you know, we listened to the whole thing backwards and forwards, went through the the entire album several times, and it was like, you know, I love Detroit Rock City. That was my favorite uh, song on the album by far, even though the car accident at the end of the song always freaked me out. I mean, it really did. <laughs> Remember, I'm only like seven years old. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I was into Kiss early. Um, and then one day... When this is back when I first started hanging out at the Trumbull Mall Arcade, you know, we're talking what 1979. Um, one day there was a Kiss uh, pinball machine in there, um, and you know, I remember when I walked in that arcade, I actually had some money, so I actually played it, you know, and I used to actually watch uh, you know, a lot of other people play it because actually the game was the the machine was really popular actually and so i would watch people all the time play it and you know sort of figure out how to you know score you know get big scores on it because i was always trying to get the high score on the machine even though it was like in the 400 500,000 range or something like that um so yeah i mean when i saw that machine in the trouble mall arcade you know those memories of you know me and my brother listening to uh destroyer just started coming back and you know i loved i love that pinball machine and let's see trouble mall had it um a little while later um the game room in bolarama had it um and there were a couple other places around town that had this had this machine at one point or another um you know, it's for a seven-year-old me, or excuse me, if we're talking, what, 79, so now I'm 10, for a 10-year-old me, you know, the game was a little on the complex side, but it wasn't, like, too crazy. You know, after a couple of the regulars, you know, told me, you know, shoot these things over here, then shoot those things over there, and, you know, always spell kiss, you know, always knock down those targets and things like that so you could build up your bonus score, um... You know, I got pretty good at it. Um, now, this is a... I'm not taking shots, but I'm going to say it. You know, I'm, I've am i already said it. I've already been on record to say that modern-day uh, pinball machines are just seem to be complex for the sake of being complex. Um, I know they're selling their machines towards... Um, the ones who will drop $10,000 on a new machine, you know, those are, you know, the professional players and, and the, uh, the, uh, collectors, you know, and they have three different tiers of these machines as they go along. I don't fault Stern for that at all. You know, they're, this is a proven business model. They're making tons of money. Um, and what they come up with is really, really innovative as I've watched, Jack Danger through the years as he's developed a relationship with Stern and he's gone to the Stern factory multiple times to play um, you know pre-production versions of new machines and so forth and streaming it on Twitch you know I mean I don't gainsay any of that but for me a lot of these things you know a lot of these new machines they're just too 
to for me they're a little too fast a little too complex and you know like i said they're geared more for towards professional players now you know that's just my personal feeling about it um but yeah i mean watching jack danger blow this particular the the kiss remake blowing that machine up it just showed me how complex pinball machines have gotten over the last what 15 15 years maybe maybe even 20 i mean as far as complex goes i mean my buck stops with you know machines like uh 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 bride of pinbot that's like that's where i stop or even Star Trek uh, The Next Generation, even though that one's a little too complex and a little too fast for me at times, but it is what it is. I'm an old man. Um, you know, I found this, uh, I found the Kiss Machine in emulation. Um, there's a website, I mean, first of all, there's a, uh, there are several uh, pinball emulators out there. The one that I used was uh, Future Pinball, and there's a website on the internet where they have several people uh, making actual uh, old school tables and for download. And you can download them on your hard drive and actually play them. Um, I still have I have one for the Kiss Machine, and you know every time I play it, it takes me right back to '79, standing at that machine in the Trouble Arcade. Um, there wasn't a lot of in- information on this machine either on Wikipedia or Pinside but there were people giving reviews of it on Pinside and they were mostly by people who weren't even alive when the original machine came out either that or they were just too little to be play it you know back in the day uh, and they basically poo poo it and they talk about how the Stern remake is so superior um, being somebody who was alive in 1979 and in the arcades, it, back in its day, this game was actually fantastic. People played it a lot. The simplicity of the machine was a strength of it, not a weakness. I mean, of course it's going to fall short of the Stern remake, because the technology for making pinball machines is light years better than it was back in the 70s. Um, you know, and like I said, you know... Stern, the way they make their pinball machines and how they make their pinball machines is done a certain way. I don't disrespect them for it. You know, it's just for the casual... It's just not that much for the casual player. You know, it's not for the person who can, you know, drop, say, what, $20 on a machine because that's the other thing that bothers me a little bit is that the price of these machines is so high it forces arcade operators to charge a dollar for uh for a game. So yeah, I mean, you know, it worked, you know, this whole new way of making these machines works against the casual player. And I understand that. You know, they got to make money too. I totally understand it. It's just kind of sad to be honest. I think if somehow they just drop the speed of their machines by say like 10% and made them made the uh made these games a little less complex I think the cat you would get a good a better return from the casual player um when I go to like Pinball Pete's and when I go to the arcade in Brighton I mean it arcade in Brighton's a different 
animal because that's all the games are on free play. Once you pay your twenty dollars to get in the door, you can play whatever you want for as long as you want, and it doesn't matter. But I mean, for like Pinball Pete's, where all their machi- all their modern day machines are a dollar a piece to play, and they give you a special of what was it, uh, four four uh, credits for three dollars or something like that. You know, it's one of those things that you know, it's just one of those things that it just makes me a little sad. I wish they could make a make a game like Xenon that only has like three or four, maybe five or six objectives in the entire game, and if you hit those objectives, you blow the machine up and you get a great score. You know, instead of, you know, like in, oh goodness, like a machine like Guardians of the Galaxy, which is like, at the very least, like, 10 modes you have to go through if not more and then you have to get them all to get into the wizard mode which is where you get you know the you know get the major amount of points and you have to be really really good um like i said i just wish they would make a machine that harkened back to those days of the 70s and early 80s and you didn't have to have razor sharp reflexes in order to be proficient at the game that's just me (laughs) you know i know i sound like an old man yelling at a cloud but you know that's just something that i've i i i think about when i think about uh pinball machines but yeah kiss was a great kiss was a great machine it really was anyway so if you've got any thoughts about this hey you know what to do arcadeaddictbrian at gmail.com okay that will bring episode 36 to a close uh, looking ahead to episode 37, I have another top 10. I've got our experienced, uh, and I've also got an arcade review, and I think I've got some on the I got on the road segment. Yes, I do. I just scrolled down to check it. So yeah, I've got some I got some more stuff coming for you for episode 37. So until then, this is Brian saying, have fun out there. Good gaming. Au revoir. Be safe. Be smart. We are turning. We're starting to cur- turn a corner with this damn pandemic. Let's just keep it going. See you guys later. This has been the Confessions of an Arcade Addict podcast. All music has been provided by Kevin McLeod. You can find his music at Incompetech.com. You can contact the show by email at arcadeaddictbrian at gmail.com, or you can call and leave a voicemail at 734-743-2433. Until next time, you have been listening to the Confessions of the Arcade Addict Podcast. See you then.